0: Listening to the Retail Razor Show, where your expert hosts and big guests cut through the clutter in retail and retail tech to shape the future of retail.
1: Hello and welcome to season three, episode eleven of the Retail Razor Show. I'm your host Ricardo Galmar,
2: and I'm your co-host Casey Golden. Welcome to Retail's favorite podcast for product junkies, commerce technologists, and everyone else in retail and retail tech alike.
1: Okay, Casey, we are back with our third recording, live and in-person at Grocery Shop, and part of our This Week and in Innovation podcast crossover series with special guest host, Jeff Roster.
2: So who are you and Jeff chatting with on this episode?
1: Ah, this is a special treat. Not only did we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, retail media networks, but we got to do that with none other than Andrew Lipsman, Principal Analyst for Retail and E-Commerce at Insider Intelligence, who... I really think is probably the, the best analyst expert in retail media today. Uh, and I think this is Andrew's third time on the show. I think I'm right about that. Uh, but this is probably the most fun we've had with this conversation, though.
2: We have a bit of a bias, but a this was a really great conversation, I have to say. And I can't help but laugh when, when you poke at Jeff. <laughs> and He was so late to the retail media party.
1: Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to let that go with Jeff. (laughs) It's too much fun.
2: So you guys really covered a lot of ground in this discussion, starting with the Instacart IPO, which had just landed on day one at Grocery Shop, right?
1: Yeah, that's true. And that was a great way to kick off the discussion because I think Andrew has a really interesting take on the IPO that might not be what most people are expecting to hear in this discussion.
2: Then you dive into what the market growth looks like overall for retail media networks. And one of my favorite parts, measurement. I mean, if you can't measure the performance of your ads, why are you going to spend money with RMNs?
1: Exactly. And one of my favorite parts of the discussion is when we get into the new mediums that RMNs are expanding into, especially around connected TV and streaming TV. Plus, Andrew brings up a fascinating example with Amazon and how they're going to leverage Thursday night football, or in this case, I should say Black Friday football.
2: Black Friday football. Yeah. I can't wait to see how that's (laughs) going to impact Black Friday sales. We may just have to have another episode on Black Friday and Cyber Monday to check that out. Hint, hint.
1: Yeah. yeah. Now who's giving away too much about future episodes?
2: (laughs) So true. And so I love how Jeff really pushes the issue on how many retail media networks can, can actually succeed. At what point are there too many? It's a really great debate you guys get into defining what that formula needs to be for a successful RMN initiatives.
1: Yeah. And that becomes a great lead in to the wrap up for our discussion on what the whole future looks like for retail media. And we pack a lot into a little over 30 minutes of discussion.
2: Well, before we get into that, what do you think about taking a short detour into something completely different and a bit more customer data centric?
1: OK, and now it's time to bring back a fan favorite segment on the show, Retail Razor Datablades, where we talk real world numbers and slice through measurable consumer insights based on research at the point of sale. And bringing us that slicing and dicing of data is Georgina Nelson, CEO of TrueRating.
2: TrueRating is helping retailers hear directly from validated shoppers daily and recently hit a major milestone of half a billion responses. Retailers using TrueRating average 80% response rates on questions that are asked. This is made possible by asking a single rotating question directly on the POS pin pad, making it a seamless part of the customer checkout experience.
3: Rating
1: also works with their retail partners to develop consumer insights reports by running questions on an industry topic or theme. These anonymous responses are linked to metrics such as basket size and repeat visits to produce industry-changing insights like the ones Georgina will be sharing with us today.
2: Welcome, Georgina. Thank you, thrilled to be here today. So today's Retail Razor Datablades topic is all about how the perception of choice is essential during the checkout experience. Please do tell us more, Georgina. So earlier this year, we asked over
0: 14,000 customers across the US, UK and Australia what their views were of self-checkout as they shopped across a variety of stores. And it was really interesting. Basically, appetite for self-checkout versus man for seemed to really be affected and be impacted by what sector you're shopping in. So in the convenience sector, customers generally preferred self-checkout, obviously, The convenience and the speed being king, but in a power where a consultative sale within a store associate is more likely, that fell to only twenty nine percent of customers saying they'd ever prefer self checkout. And as speed was clearly key, it's interesting to look at the number of products which were in the basket. Ultimately, there seems to be a threshold of if there are more than three items in the basket, consumers will look for that manned till, and Interestingly, in a stat which I'm sure we can all sympathise with, one in five customers report facing challenges with the self checkout. Oh, there's Ricardo. <laughs> That's me. I'm that one. What what we also found, which again I think is is really interesting, is the option of whether there is a manned till or self checkout is really key. When customers perceive that self checkout is their only part, they end up spending 29% less. So basically, if you feel that you're being forced to use self checkout, your shopping patterns actually change. And when, while that looks such a, such a big number, when I think to my own experience, if I can see it's only self checkout, I'll just leave buying that bottle of wine to when I walk past the office later on. I cannot be bothered to, uh, yeah, for the bell to ring. Wait for a store associate who doesn't obviously believe that I am under twenty-one. I mean, who would? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and so I think retailers recognising that investing in that choice is key to ensure that there is
1: no dip in that average transactions. Well, I as we were joking about, I think I can definitely attest to that because I immediately thought to my, one of my, I would say probably least favorite self-checkout experiences are at home improvement stores, which seems to be the trend now that they almost exclusively want you to use self-checkout and very rarely have anyone manning a, a checkout area unless it's for returns or some other customer service area. And, and I think that does factor in because I'll usually decide, well, if fine. I'll, that's okay because I'm only going to buy one or two things anyway. Mm. Uh, and so I'm only going to carry those one or two things. No matter how awkward those items may be, which they often are at a home improvement store, I, I'll figure out how to get through the self-checkout and hopefully not cause all the alarms to go off and we'll have to wait for someone to come and fix it because it wouldn't scan the item. But yeah, that I, I, I would definitely feel uh, as a consumer that I'm not likely to buy a lot of things knowing that I have to go through that self-checkout.
2: Also too, I think I use self checkout when I'm only buying a couple things in general, period. Mm-hmm. So like it might also, there's who knows, like that, that could definitely skew the data at uh, home improvement. I'm not going to go through, all, buy a whole bunch of lumber and a whole bunch of things and then go through self checkout. I'm not lifting all that stuff. You just put it in your cart um, <laughs> or heavier products. Right. So you, there has to be a mix of both. I don't think that we can go a hundred percent one way. It does change perception. I kind of, I don't like the idea of it. So it just kind of like the brand's no longer relating to my DNA because they're now doing, rolling something out that I don't believe in. But at the same time, being able to get this information from the customers, like essentially real time, I, I see that it would be much more beneficial to the decision makers on how they're making technology decisions, changes, rolling it out across more locations. I think it really is a critical point where retailers have to just ask questions to consumers.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Casey. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Consumers are changing so rapidly. Innovation technology and store is changing rapidly. And for those, those two things to be in two step, it's, it's key to be uh, getting real time, up to date customer sentiment data. And as you said, just simply, simply ask them. And then you're so. not operating and making decisions in the dark, which can come to bite you later.
1: What's interesting is, and I think Costco is one example of a retailer doing this the, the trend of having, not a, obviously not a man self checkout area, but having at least one staff member standing by, right, near the self checkout area for those moments when something does go wrong so they can quickly go over and help. And I, I, I think in the past, self checkout was always presented as a labor solution for retailers right in the sense that you would have fewer people staffing the checkout area uh, yet still have a, a good enough process that it would provide a good experience for customers when they check out without incurring any losses or anything but a one person manning multiple self checkouts versus a one-to-one correspondence to a, a manned checkout area is still a labor savings i suppose but i I, I'm kind of curious when you are working with the retailer, Georgina, and you have this kind of survey done and they're looking at data like this, what, what's a typical thing that you suggest to retailers and say, you know, what? how would you follow up with this? Is the normal thing that happens that a retailer says, well, we've learned this is a really interesting result and outcome from this question we asked. Now I want to go and ask a different question and kind of correlate the two to see what kind of insight they can come up with. Or do you usually see something uh, like this where it's a very discreet kind of question and they just want that answer? And then they're going to go off and, and take actions against that result. What, what do you find is the more common approach?
0: Yeah, I think asking a raft of questions to be able to dig, dig deep, but also just being able to look at all really the contextual data which you have around that. So while on the face of it, it seems very simple, oh, it's just, a, it's just a question. Because of our integration with the POS, we can see, while all anonymous, we can see what someone, the products which they bought. We can see how often they return and how much they spend. And so if you're looking at your, both of your examples of a home improvement store, actually being able to work with the retailer to say, yeah, it's, uh, it is in the, when people are buying huge planks of, of wood, that's when uh, they have the most poorest experience on the self checkout. So maybe it's about the ease of that remote scanner or or whatever it is, or really understanding that basket, that shopping basket mission and and the profile of those consumers. And so you can take those insights and whether that's different investments in technology or training, like you said, having an assisted, assisted checkout, but does it Do they stand at the front and shepherd you to the self-checkout? Do they help you scan the first item? It's these kinds of things which we're working with our retailers to test the A-B test and really get that optimum consumer journey and customer experience.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Well, that will do it for another edition of the Retail Razor Data
2: Blades. Georgina, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both. Wow, I really love the detail Georgina is able to get into on those customer insights. Checkout is so fundamental to the retail experience, but there's so many options on how to execute in a way that doesn't add to the friction of the experience.
1: I agree. And I have to say, I'm still not a fan of most self checkout systems, but Georgina is 100% right that you need options to make customers happy in that checkout experience. I mean, perception really is more than meets the eye, after all.
2: (laughs) I let you get one of your 80s references in again. But we better move right into the amazing conversation you and Jeff Roster had with Andrew Lipsman at Grocery Shop before you find a way to work in another one.
1: I knew I could manage to get in at least one this time. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Let's get to it.
1: We are here live at day two on Grocery Shop, and I am thrilled to be teaming up with a uh, good friend, Jeff Roster, host of This Week in Innovation once again for this podcast series. D- Jeff, how's things going for you on day two?
3: You know, fantastic, uh, Ricardo. It was a great day uh, yesterday, some, you know, some g- great booth uh uh, folks here and the parties last night, or the actually the evening research opportunities last night were phenomenal.
1: <laughs> the evening research opportunities, yeah. That's much, much better way to, shout to, to, to put our, it. yeah.
3: Big shout out to our friends at uh, Rethink Retail. Yeah. I think maybe one of the most iconic locations for yep. an evening great, event I've ever event. had. Yeah. Weather was perfect. Uh, beautiful view of the, uh, of the, uh, great view of the strip of the, of the strip. Yeah. yeah it's fantastic. Great
1: conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a fantastic event. That definitely. Absolutely. So, Continuing with this fantastic trend, we are super thrilled to have uh, back on the show again, uh, Andrew Lipsman, Principal Analyst at Insider Intelligence, covering all things e-commerce, retail, and we're uh, planning to talk about one of my favorite topics, which I know Jeff loves to hear me talk about, and that is retail media. Andrew, it's great to have you back on the show. How are you?
4: I'm doing great. Uh, thanks, Ricardo. Thanks, Jeff. Um, I think this is my third time on the show. I think so, so where right? I'm, yeah, when, yeah. When do I get the smoking jacket? I, I know. That's right. you have what to is come it up It must the... be five, maybe. Five? five? I don't know. Okay. You to, I don't know maybe. I'm, I'm kind of lost we're track. To, it, yeah. it
3: might have a Microsoft logo on it. <laughs> just,
4: <a> point. <laughs> just get the hand-me-down
3: swag <laughs> <That's right. laughs> or a backpack. Yeah, or but is kind of low on swag on the show, so we'll, we'll, we'll
1: see. So, um, I I guess one of the super interesting things this week that everybody is talking about is Instacart and their IPO and and how they're looking a lot more like an advertising retail media play than any other kind of business,
4: right? Yeah. Well, so it's been interesting to have this scuttlebutt going on at the conference. The timing landed perfectly, right? Because you never really know exactly when that IPO is going to float. Um, and and the day one of the event, we, we kicked it off with the, the IPO and it got, you know, a pretty big pop, I think up 30, 40% at Mm -hmm. some point, then kind of settled in to up, I want to say 13%, which Mm -hmm. I would say like, that's almost the perfect number that you want. Just enough of a pop that you're not leaving so much money on the table. Right. Right. Um, Instacart is, it's been very interesting to me because I feel like there has been a lot of negativity around it, a lot of negative headlines about growth slowing and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. And at the data that I've been looking at for a long time, I've actually felt like Instacart's been executing really well. They are going to be an advertising business. I mean, that in the sense that their valuation will be tied into advertising. Advertising is 30% of their revenue. Um, and you know what? They're almost a victim of their pandemic success because they got this ridiculous, you know, like 300% spike during 20, 20 right, yeah, 2021, remember, yeah. it was never going to be sustainable. At yeah. some point you got to catch up with your growth. And so what I was really looking for is underneath that ridiculous growth trajectory and then plateauing, was there a solid, was, was the foundation of their customer base solidify and you unpack the S1 and the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, they will, I think, return to growth at a more normal growth trajectory that they probably would have had, you know, if the pandemic never it happened to the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so that's the foundation for the business. That's what enables the advertising opportunity. But the advertising opportunity has been executed very well on the search side of the business. They have a lot of advertiser density. Um, and they have a lot of unrealized opportunities because they have yet to really move up the funnel um, into, you know, they just inked a partnership with Roku, um, which hasn't even materialized yet. That's the first time that they've really started to move into these upper funnel environments. And they have fantastic data. To bring to bear. Um, they also are aligning with the in-store digi- digitization with their connected store initiative. So that's an interesting play. Um, I think a lot of their future success depends on how well they execute. But to me, when I look at the strategy of the company and where they're pointed, um, I don't see a lot that's wrong. I actually think mm-hmm. their CEO has the company pointed in, in a very good direction. So wh- where, do,
1: where do you see them uh, going with the in-store? play? Because I I feel like the in-store side of, you know, whenever we talk retail media is still, there's more talk about it. There's a lot of traditional media things, I guess I'll I'll call it, that have been done in-store and grocery since, you know, the dawn of time practically, right? But there's this new angle towards tying that into the digital side of things and go moving in-store. How how do you think Instacart's going to really do that strongly? Yeah.
4: I mean, they're trying to provide the enterprise platform to help stores digitize um and some of the touch points right they acquired a smart cart company mm-hmm. so pr- trying to have smart carts and you know they're introduced different forms of digital signage but their play their strategy really is i call it the shopification of Instacart they're executing a shopify strategy for the mid and long tail of grocery retail and it's a significant market um the media is focusing a lot on you know the conflict with the major retailers right. and, you know like right. this this the tension that you might have between a Kroger, for example, I'm like, just expect that there will be a day where Instacart will have a very bad headline where some retailer pulls out. It's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. But if they're building the business the right way, um, which, you know, a lot of good digital ad businesses have done is they work, they have a very long tail. And if you have a very long tail, then you're resilient to losing that single big customer. Um, it's no surprise, you know, Fiji Simo, their CEO, she came from Facebook. Mm-hmm. Two things that I'm sure are burned into her memory are, one, on the eve of Facebook's IPO, GM pulled out, mm-hmm. right? Right. That was terrible headlines. So, she knows what the risk is of yeah. how, how that... Uh, it, it didn't change the fundamentals of the business, but it didn't, you know, it didn't create great headlines. Um, she also understands what, what happened with the Facebook advertiser boycott. You had a lot of the biggest advertisers leave for a period of time a couple of years ago. And guess what? Their business didn't miss a beat because they have so many advertisers and such a long tail. So, I think that she is thinking along those lines of uh, building the business for that opportunity. So, when that inevitable headline of a retailer pulling out does happen, um, I don't think the business would, would miss a beat. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: you mentioned before, you know how they've done executed this really well on the product search side, and as, as an Instacart user, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would definitely attest that that works well. So, uh, I mean, you know, at, at any category search at, at a product level that I do in Instacart, right? There is plenty of ad placement that comes up from from brands I, I know, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. And. It, and I, I notice they do a good job of aligning it to my past purchase history. Yeah. So if there's a match right between an advertiser, and my past purchase, I see those actually, you typically get placed first, uh, and I, which I think makes makes sense that way to get good conversion for that. Um, I, I, I've seen them, you know, they're, they're, they're layering on, I, I guess, some AI to this as well, like to try to get to the point where I, if I don't know what category I'm searching with, I just know I want to... This is the meal we want to have, right? And I, and I need to know, like, what do I have to buy for that? They're they're moving in that direction uh, by leveraging AI and Gen AI features and things. So, I see that happening on the consumer and user side of it yeah. in the app to really play. And I can see there's even more opportunity there than to put, get placements from brands into that. Um, and I don't know if I'm the typical Instacart user or not. But, I mean, I, I use them for multiple places when we're grocery shop, including places that do their own grocery like Walmart. You know, right. when I do... Groceries from Walmart, I'm getting them through Instacart, not direct through the Walmart app. Uh, So, I don't know if maybe I'm the exception on that one. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But I'm sure they've got great data on this that really makes this a strong
4: play. Well, that's the thing, right? They're the multi-retailer solution. So, they see across so much of the landscape. Um, It's, you know, the foundation of great retail media is is having better data. And Mm -hmm. I would say, in a sense, you could argue they have the best data in this category in a really diverse and vibrant category so um, they do have a data advantage I think in in many respects and uh, and the, and the all the advertisers are there so there's you know it also ends up serving the advertisers well when you have a lot of uh, advertiser density because you know you get to better pricing and all the sorts of things that happen when there's there's competition mm-hmm. um, so it's interesting they've they've done really well with the business it's uh, what I want to say 750 million already or thereabouts. Pretty considerable business growing quickly, um, mostly on search. I mean, that's the thing is like they really haven't scratched the surface very much on even some of the more upper funnel units on site. Mm-hmm. So just sticking to the core, um, they're doing well. But there's so much value to be tapped in search. And this is what I think can easily be looked past, which is that you got to get the search ad relevance right. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. as you're saying, yeah. they, they do a good job with it, yeah. right? Amazon yeah. has done a phenomenal job. Yeah. And it's a big reason why Amazon is the behemoth in retail media. Um, Instacart, they're executing well. It's a counter narrative. I know. Cause yeah. it's, it's been very, been of, to, right. to, um, it's been very popular to,
1: to, um, to dig on them. And it, do,
4: and it doesn't mean that there's not going to be stumbles, right? Every IPO, IP, there's going to be stumbles. There always are. Yeah. Um, and you know, there are things that, Sound good right now in strategy that they may not execute well. So it doesn't mean that this is going to be an easy road for them. But, uh, but I think there, there are a lot more positives than are currently being appreciated. Yeah.
3: You know, this whole retail media thing, um, as an analyst that's covered this technology or this space for so long, it's so hard for me to, to hear these numbers and understand how many billions of dollars <laughs> that just showed yeah. up. And just, yeah. if you look here at the show, there's four, there's four, uh, retail media, a boost. And there's probably, I don't know how, how big is the vendor space in the, it's gotta be 50, 60, 70 vendors that are trying to hit. Yeah, I've just come online trying to gain some aspect of this. This is a whole new area that, that I'm not sure retails really even begin to understand what to do with and how to use.
4: It's, it's a massive opportunity. So just to give it some context, $45 billion market in the U S this year, mm-hmm. uh, on its way, mostly Amazon right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> but, uh, but you know, the future is not going to be as Amazon dominant. Um, on its way to about one hundred and five billion in the next four years, hmm. so that's a big opportunity. Yeah. and the question that comes up a lot is, where do the budgets come from? Where is, is it coming from? Right, shopper yeah. or is it coming from trade? And what I am seeing is just shifting the, dollars the around. Biggest is, is actually incremental. It's new money. Digital has always kind of gotten incremental spend. It's disproportionately going to retail media. Um, it's gonna start to splinter off of some of these other larger existing budgets. But what Often goes uh, underappreciated is measurement makes markets. Like, but when you introduce measurement, it actually brings in new spend that didn't exist because the measurement is there. So Mm -hmm. the example that I like to go back to from history in this space is uh, the advent of scanner data in the 80s and early 90s. What happened back then was, you know, trade spend was a, a relatively small portion of overall CPG marketing spend. And back then, if you saw what your sales were doing in the store, you'd have these bi-monthly audits and you'd see over two months, here's what sales were. And you know it basically looked roughly the same over these two-month periods. Um, you introduce scanner data and you realize that the promotions are causing these crazy weekly spikes. There wasn't visibility into this before scanner data. What happens over the next several years, $40 billion of new marketing spend comes into CPG just to go against this opportunity because it's like, wait, this is what happens when I put tr- promotions money yeah. into CPG sales spike boom, new mar- new marketing uh, yeah. pools of spend were created. So I think a lot of that is going to happen in retail media. Yeah, um, and that's so it's not the zero sum game we're, we're yeah, actually we're growing the, the pie thing. here.
1: Yeah. It's it's not right. You're not we're not all and, and and I always think of you know whenever everyone a lot of people will be quick to say oh but it's majority Amazon that's getting the money right now. So where's the growth for everyone else and And I kind of feel like it's the same point. It's that, well, it's not like there's this fixed amount of market share that's trying to be captured here. And okay, Amazon has, you know, blowout proportion of that doesn't mean they're all competing with Amazon for those dollars. They're actually trying to grow the overall market for that spend. And I guess that's a a great point about the measurement. So I know one of the things like this time, I, I guess maybe last year when we last talked about this, right? One of the big questions that brands had is, everyone's going to measure, every retail is going to measure this differently. How do, right. how do I know and figure out, how can I compare that, you know, yeah, my dollar at with Kroger goes this far, but if I spend it with, you know, uh, a, some, a different gross, like, you know, how do I compare this? Where there's no, where was the standardization that lets me as a brand measure everything like I'm used to in other, in other mediums. Um, but I think yeah. that's changing, right?
4: It's, it's evolving and uh, credit to the IAB, which, you know, to bring, all the different players to the table and and have their counsel on on measurement um it is it's a cat herding exercise and <laughs> yeah. i've heard this one described as the most efficient cat herding exercise mm. i've ever seen right <laughs> <laughs> that's a, it's a pretty nice compliment yeah um and i think retailers they have aligned around some of these standards and so we we are going to see that that standardization um across rmns um i also think there's a bigger role for third party measurement to play mm. so as an rmn just like with publishers. like Put your best foot forward. You provide the the bespoke metrics that you want that you think articulate the value of your platform so that brands can make investments that make sense within your platform. By all means, do that. And live in a world in which there is standardized third-party measurement that works across the whole ecosystem so that any brand can look at that performance uh, and cross-compare. And if you enable that, brands have a lot more confidence to invest, and then they figure out how to allocate across the networks. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense.
1: So, so we've talked before about how, you know, in-store was that next great area to expand RMNs into and how each media network is going to grow that. But I, I guess there's, you know, interesting things, I think, even beyond that, that I've seen that i would love to get your thoughts on. Like, so before we start recording, you know, you mentioned things like on, on coming back around to Amazon, right? So, now they're Working in, there's a, a new play around Thursday night football. Yeah. With that, how, how do you see the,
4: those kinds of things factoring in? Yeah, this, I mean, there is a, a shift towards upper funnel environments and that's an offsite display and video, it's streaming TV and it's in store media. So um, I'm excited about what's happening with streaming TV. We've mm. seen a lot of yeah. partnerships materializing over the last year or so between publishers, media companies, and the retailers. So Those pipes have been connecting and now it's going to start to materialize as we pipe in the content. Um, I'm really excited to have closed loop measurement against Mm -hmm. highly rated television programming. We've never had that before. Um, right. NFL Thursday night football and Amazon was a thing last year, but they basically ran it like traditional TV this year. They're allowing, uh, segmented targeting and closed loop measurement. It's a game changer. Yeah. It's an absolute game changer and it's, it's a sign of things to come, um, And then I'm also really, really interested in Amazon has a Black Friday football game. So, it Mm. is like a shot across the bow to brick and mortar retail. Like, hey, Amazon here, uh, stay on your couch and (laughs) shop on your phone (laughs) for things from Amazon rather than going into brick and mortar. So, who are are the advertisers that are going to advertise it, right? It's like you would think this would be Walmart, Target, and Best Buy ads. I don't think that's going to happen. Right. Um, right. If I had to guess, I think it's Amazon has been trying to be more hospitable to, I would say, the large direct-to-consumer established brands. Mm-hmm. Um, Peloton is selling through Amazon, and they're a major mm-hmm. marketer. Yeah. Gap companies yeah. like that. I think that is the brands that you're likely to see uh, advertising on on that program. But I don't know, and I can't wait to find out who it is. Yeah, that's that's really going to be curious. Who
1: <laughs> who wants to pull the trigger on that and, and advertise? You know, and and thinking about who's my audience then, right? Who's not going to go to stores, but they're going to stay and watch football.
3: What am I going to advertise? Or to? they're coming back from stores. I mean, you and I yeah, used to do that Black yeah. Friday exercise at yeah. four in the morning. That's right. yeah. They're in the old like, days. Right, right. Everybody who
1: lined up at six in the morning to get the, the in-store deal comes back for afternoon football. And now they can buy online. So, I I, I guess maybe that makes me think is, is it... As much a shot against brick and mortar Black Friday retail, as much as it is pulling some potential, you know, weekend and Cyber Monday online shopping forward
4: to, to Friday? It's all of these things. So, here's, yeah. there's this like un- undercurrent of a battle between Amazon and Walmart the last mm-hmm. couple of years. It's mm-hmm. kind of fun to watch. Um, if you yeah. remember last year, on an otherwise boring holiday season, I would say. Walmart unveiled uh, an ad campaign. that was a case of the Mondays. It was this office space parody where they had a lot of the old actors from office space in it. Uh-huh. And they were basically trying to claim some ownership of Cyber Monday. That's Amazon's day. yeah. So, they they also had a shot across the <laughs> box to, to Amazon. So, it's right. There's this kind yeah. of battle, this yeah. back and forth that's going on. Um, I like it because that adds a little bit of intrigue to another season that is probably shaping up to be a little bit more boring than usual. Right, right. So, Andrew,
3: why don't you coin the term, which, which you're going to call that spike for uh, Black Friday football? I mean, coin the term now. I mean, we had <laughs> yeah. Cyber Monday, which is a made up term. Uh, right. Yeah. And, you know, Black Friday, which is a 100 year old term. What are we going to call the spike on? Oh, uh, no.
4: That's a good one. We'll have to think about that. A um, little bit of internet history, by the way. I'll, I'll, I'll take yeah. you back in time, the Wayback Machine. Uh, I started. My career in e-commerce measurement on November 21st, 2005, when I joined Comscore, did early e-commerce measurement. Mm-hmm. It was the day that shop.org coined the term Cyber Monday. Yep. So I yep. walked into my first day, phones ringing off the hook <laughs> with people asking about Cyber Monday because we were providing the measurement. Here's a little unknown history that that sits behind this, which is that uh, before me, some folks at Comscore... We're watching the daily numbers come in, and they noticed this phenomenon back in like 2001 or t- 2002 of this Monday spike mm. after the weekend. And uh, there's actually an article that from the AP that talks about this phenomenon. 2002, huh. three years before it was coined, and wow. and they at the time were calling it Black Monday. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which would never work because it was be Black Friday. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, but anyway, so this was this phenomenon was discovered uh, years prior to, mm. to the event being created.
3: And the lesson there is name it and claim it. Name it fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. own the term and own it. Yeah. It, it makes me laugh though. Every time I hear, knowing the history and I, I've known the history for a while, um, yeah. it just makes me laugh every time I see that. It's, it's just classic analyst sort of, you know. Yeah. Name it and get a term out there. Right.
4: Right. Interesting. Make, see if it sticks.
3: <laughs> Do you know yeah. who's playing um, Black Friday?
4: No, I should have looked. Somebody asked me this earlier. I so said, I don't even know. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm too focused on the ads. That I not think about the teams. <laughs> well, it, It's like when people watch the
1: Super Bowl just for the ads, right?
3: <laughs> hey, listen, there was a lot of us on Twitter that, uh, I mean, I was actually watching the game, but I'm, you know, I literally, that first year I had, you know, I had my uh, whole Set up because, you know, a bunch of our friends were all tweeting back and forth. And we were this crazy, you know, Twitter storm or X storm. Well, at the time it was a Twitter storm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the days. Yeah. So, Andrew, do do you expect
1: that, you know, you mentioned before, like the pipes were being built and the connections made with the streaming platforms and all the connected TV platforms. Do you yeah. expect that's going to have a, a factor to play this holiday season?
4: Uh the content you You know know? what there will be it will probably happen in bits and pieces um usually i'd say we're probably more still in the experimental phase so Mm -hmm. some things will start to materialize but you know you'll have to work out the kinks and uh get some reps in from the brands and understand the data that comes back and yeah how to optimize and invest against and open up budgets. like there's going to be a process here so to me this is more of a 2024 sort of thing, but certainly mm-hmm. watch out for more incarnations of this. Um, you know, Kroger and Roku, I think, have probably that's a partnership that have kind of been at it the longest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the one that's probably a bit ahead of the curve, and then Amazon because they kind of own the, the whole stack here. Yeah, will be doing it, um, and then the rest are kind of in the process of figuring it out.
1: Well, oh, that makes sense. Makes sense.
4: So, um, well, I, so yeah, that
1: kind of takes us out through this holiday season into next year. So each year, I think it feels like there's always this question of what's going to be the explosive factor with retail media. So I, I want to say a year ago, the big conversation was, you know, how many retail media networks can there be, right? If every retailer creates one, at what point is it too many that, that just isn't sustainable? And then I don't know that I've heard, though, a lot of I mean, as much media noise as there was around every time someone announced a new media network. I haven't heard any announcements of people saying, well, we're shutting that down. It didn't really produce anything. Um, you know, I, I still hear Jeff. We were having that conversation last night <laughs> with one re-
3: you know, retailer just I, thinking, well, we don't know if we should
1: start a retail media network. I was really trying network. to figure out how, how we could do
3: that? completely uh, uh, make that anonymous. But, yeah, we had a fascinating conversation yeah. last night. Um, Major player retailer, where's the value and Should I create this? And you know, I, I was in that conversation before Ricardo showed up, and I, I scratched every inch of of (laughs) retail media knowledge, which was about that much. Um, but I mean, the point is, is was an interesting question: is you know, does every retailer, or at least every major retailer, tier one, high tier two, need to have a retail media network? And how do they, if they don't have it, what do they do? And how do they justify it? And
4: how is it worth the cost? And all those sort of questions. Maybe you, do they have it? a right to win? Um, and I would say there's, Interesting. there are, I can easily get to 20 mm-hmm. and probably closer to 30 players where I'm like, this yeah. is, it'll be a nice business for them. Yeah. Um, they're not all going to be gangbusters, but they, there will be good businesses. Um, who should not play? Well, who's the one who fell out of the market already? It was Gap. Yeah. But there's a reason why. It never really had a right to exist because they sell their own brand. That's right. That's what I was if thinking. If you are of. not a multi-brand retailer right. and you're thinking about a retail media network, yeah. you probably don't What's have a plan? play. Yeah. If you do, you better have a big store footprint mm-hmm. and you better have a really good reason for having in-store retail media for non-endemic brands. Yeah. I can't think of an example off the top of my That's, head. Yeah, yeah. If I'm working this hard, I think that, that the, the rule of thumb is if basically you're, you're, you're an owned brand retailer, you shouldn't have a retail media network. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense to me as well, because there's what's, We're where's the conversion the
1: incentive, right, for <laughs> a brand to want to, be, and it would have to all be non-endemic advertising, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, and then it, how it do you win have... their attention? That's yeah. the thing,
4: you're competing with, it's not just that you have data that can be used by them, it's your data has to be substantially better than the next best alternative, right, right. and you probably don't have that. Gap right. did not have that, right? Their apparel data, there's a million purveyors of apparel data. Right. How is it research? any better than anyone else to, to mm-hmm. a non-endemic brand that might
1: be a potential advertiser?
4: Yeah. 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 So the top 100 retailers
3: are $1 trillion dollars in revenue. So of those 100, really you're thinking 30? 30, 30
4: of those 100? Well, I think 30 of them will build really strong retail media networks. And I think that you then probably have another 30 or 40 that I would say end up being something workable. Um, something that mm-hmm. may be a worthwhile effort that adds a little bit to the top line. It's not going to transform their business. But 30 or 40, I think, will have a meaningful impact on, on their businesses, um, less on the top line than the bottom line. And what about the high tier twos? High tier twos have a great opportunity. Yeah, right now is their time to, sh- to shine because they're just starting to take advantage of the next wave of opportunities in terms of upper funnel uh, advertising and, and in-store. I mean, it's sort of so nascent and the tier twos are the ones who have these huge brick and mortar footprints. So
3: of a tier two retailer that hits all the criteria uh, that you talked about, how low, how small of a retailer by revenue do you think has a play in a retail media network?
4: Oh, I don't know what the number is off the top of my head, but um, I would think it depends on what your play is. Do you have enough search traffic that you can get enough advertisers and take that low hanging fruit? So you'd have to. And and if not, how big is your store footprint? Um, And I think, you know, you probably have to have, let's say, at least a few hundred stores. So you're talking 500 500 million, maybe 750 million. Probably somewhere in that range, yeah. Well, yeah. you're still now, you're
3: adding at least another couple, three or four hundred retailers that would fit that criteria. Well, they would fit that revenue criteria. The revenue criteria, but they still have to these, be like... You cut, from, cut just out just probably half of them. Products. So,
4: if, let's, talk, let's talk about like regional grocers as an example, right? They yeah. have some store footprints. They're seeing a lot of sales within their stores. Um, they're not going to be able to sort of be their own retail media network as a, in terms of a walled garden. But what they can do is be part of an aggregation play. Right. So they can yeah. introduce in-store signage and they can you know, basically have the buys be executed through a, uh, a network player and take advantage of their cut of that ad revenue. I think that's a totally viable play yeah. that's really found money for, for those so, retailers.
1: So that one I find interesting because that, that one in and of itself is not necessarily a new thing. There, there have been aggregated networks like that since the beginning of digital signage. Yeah. That, that fall in that model. Um, uh, I mean, I even remember like Walmart was part of one uh, way back when. Um, uh, and there were other, other places like that. I, I don't know that any of them are still around. Um, but I, I guess the key difference is, you know, when they started, we, d- we didn't phrase the, you know, term this retail media, right? It was just a digital signage network. Yeah. And it was seen as a content play, uh, versus now saying it's retail media, it's an advertising play. And I think there seems to be some strong impact just in the way we talk about it versus the way it used to be talked about
4: that makes a completely different story and paints a totally different picture for everyone. That's part of it. The narrative is better, but also timing matters. And so, right, like there are a lot of enablers that are required to scale a a new media market. Um, I would say from the earlier incarnations of it, almost none of those enablers existed. It was too clun- it was right. just straight up too clunky, too much mm-hmm. friction. Mm-hmm. And if the dollars weren't there, and there wasn't attention, and brands looking to invest against these opportunities, yeah. then it didn't pencil out. Right. Just in the same way that you know Webvan didn't pencil out in the early days the early of the internet. Days. But you yeah. know what? Now grocery delivery does pencil yeah. out. Right. It, t- right. Sometimes you need time, and you need yeah. you need to layer a new well. And there's even things like make. in those early signage days
1: where there was no e-commerce factor that was driving search. Yeah. Uh, to build on, right? That, that really didn't exist. There wasn't enough volume there to make it worthwhile for anybody at the time. So you only had that in-store digital screen component. And, and the cost, you're, you're right, the costs were much higher
4: oh, That's at right. the time. So that capex. was a thing. I mean, CapEx, CapEx is, a CapEx is a huge. Was, was huge and, and there are so many technologies that are happening now that are going to underpin a lot of the needs of the market mm-hmm. that went from being like huge CapEx to almost overnight, like, oh, you can do that at almost no CapEx. I mean, big game yeah. changers on, yeah. on a lot of the underlying te- technology. Yeah. So, the economics of the whole industry are changing. In, in the in-store piece, do you see you know, electronic shelf tags as, as a medium for this, as an, as one of those enablers? 100%. Um, I'd like to see more of it. I'm excited about it. I think, one, just as part of digitization of the store, I think it's it's more efficient to have price tags change mm-hmm. uh in an automated fashion rather than having yeah. somebody to manually do that. But then also I think about the shelf edge and mm-hmm. the ability to introduce, you know, color schemes in, uh, into the aisle, right? If, if I'm walking down the beverage aisle and I'm Pepsi, do I want to have that blue strip that says Pepsi mm-hmm. across the aisle and freeze out Coca-Cola or vice versa? Right. I mean, think <laughs> about that. That's, yeah. know, That starts to yeah. become a pretty interesting mm-hmm. play.
3: Those would have to be new electronic shelf labels, though, to yeah. take advantage, not the, not
4: the current. Well, and you can have the shelf labels that are sort of the standalone labels, but you also have shelf edge, edge. which just be that yeah. thin strip. And maybe those two things can come together. You may be able to have a version of it that right. can toggle back and forth between sort of the branding and then the, the pricing. I don't know what it exa- exactly looks like, but um, I think there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, I agree. That makes sense. What do you think, Jeff?
3: Oh man, well you beat me down on the subject for sure. I mean, we, we go we back, made you a believer. We go back, we go back to our clubhouse days, and yeah. uh, when you threw that term out, and I went, "What? What?" <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, let me write that down. You know, do some quick research. Um, but no, it's. Uh, I mean, just flashing back to that conversation last night. Um, yeah. I, I really wish we would have had this conversation last night because I would have sounded a heck of a lot smarter for sure. Because <laughs> I would have rattled off those four points, which. This particular retailer would have hit every one of them. And yeah. that would have been a whole different, right. a, a fundamentally a whole different conversation. A matter of fact, we need to send this conversation to that retailer and that's right. yeah. Yeah. say, hey, we answered yeah. your question. So, no, it's interesting. It's <laughs> I mean, the numbers are just amazing. Um, and you start thinking, just think about all the technology you just talked about and all the agencies and all this. I mean, it's a whole ecosystem that's just going to, that literally probably didn't exist, what, eight, nine, 10 years ago, and that is just going to explode. And, uh, yet again, retailers that don't, that fit that, the, that
4: criteria that don't do something here,
3: you know. And it's not,
4: be, it's not just a fad. I, I, am amazed at how often I'm still asked if this is, is the hype cycle over? Is the greatest <laughs> <right>, is <laughs> the,
3: well, the hype the- cycle is never over as a gardener <laughs> analyst <laughs> in peak of inflated expectations, trough of disillusionment is not a bad thing. It's the adolescence of a technology. So the goal right. is to get through that hype peak of inflated expectations down. The trough of disillusionment, yeah. you know, up to the platform. And this is the reality
4: yeah. moment, right? It's like there's huge opportunities in front of us, but there's a lot more friction to get there, to, Wait, real, to realize yeah. the opportunity. So, so it's, it's kind of more interesting in that way. But um, no, there's, it, there's something real here, and it is because it is built on a foundation of better data. Well, it's the better data and it's closed loop measurement. And closed loop measurement at the end of the day, that's what drives ad markets or digital ad markets, at least.
3: What do you think the understanding of the conversation we just had with the majority of retailers that would qualify for retail media networks that don't have one? I mean, if if we played this conversation with this, go, yes, I understand
4: every point you just made. Uh, no, I think there's a, lo- a lot of lack of understanding um, because these are retailers. And I think a big part of what I've learned that I've had to play, and also there are people, the retail media champions within their organizations, the role they have to play is translator. How do you translate between the worlds of retail and media? Well, yeah. that, was, that was last night. That's, that's was exactly, exactly the conversation we it were comes having. Up, yeah. It comes up yeah. constantly. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the thing is you have to understand how these worlds work together and retailers, you know, I just wrote an article where I said basically retailers need to stop acting or retail media networks need to stop acting like retailers and start acting like media companies. Yeah. It's not just about driving traffic and sales in your own store. It's about serving the brand and some of those sales will occur outside of your four walls and you need to be okay with that. Yeah, I, I think of it as the retailer kind of realizing that
1: they're, they're not just a shopping destination now, they're a platform. Right? And as part of that platform, you're serving those brands that are bringing these at advertising to your platform with the goal of connecting and converting the other side of the platform, which is those consumers that the retailer has. So now it's um, and, and I'm intentional. I'm not using phrases like, you know, um, you know re- like a, a, like retail as a platform like we do when we talk about software <laughs> as a platform, right? I mean, all those kinds of things. So a Software as a service, retail as a service. It's not the same thing. I- I'm seeing it more as the actual retailer's business turning into a platform business, which is in many ways a fundamentally different one than just being a transactional commerce business.
4: And said another way, they have traditionally been B2C. And now, yeah, the, now and, they, and now they B2B. have to be
1: B2B. Right. And they need to be both. They need right. to be both. They have they to need look to at it as both. And that implies t- unique specialties, unique skill sets, different ones than they're likely to have. And so that means, you know, not just growing it from a business point of view, but it's also growing it from having the right
4: staffing. Yes. Right? Having and it, the right and people it really argues, It argues for the RMN to act independently. Yeah. These two things are different businesses. They need to be formed differently and they mm-hmm. need to... Um, right. There has to be alignment, I guess, ultimately at the C-level, but they need yeah. to operate as independent entities. Right. And the ones that are getting the most traction are doing that. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. As you're saying that, I'm thinking it's like, you
1: know, Kroger, Albertsons, right? Walmart. Mm-hmm. You know, they all have that separated. Target has it called out as Roundel, right? You've got Walmart Connect. All of these have, have set them up as separate, separate business units, right? To run what they need to do. Exactly.
3: That's true. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Uh,
1: well, Andrew, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Always fun to talk retail media with you. Um, <laughs> whatever appearance this is, I've lost track. I'm sure we're going to be coming back to this over and over again as it keeps growing. And uh, I, I think like you, know, I, I can't wait to see how this is going to play out with the connected TV piece. I think that one's, I, I just feel like that one's going to be really fascinating. Yeah, 2024 20, like should be yeah. an
4: exciting year. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me back. Um, let's get an official count because I, I I'm... We're gonna figure gonna out the right swag, swag for you. Yeah, gonna we're gonna have to figure out the right swag for you here on this one. Yeah,
1: I think at this point, Casey and I have been debating. D- this. I, I think it probably d- comes down between you and Ron Thurston for the most appearances yep. on the show. <laughs> Where is this Ron Thurston? He's lurking. He's, <laughs> he's lurking he's, a lot. Yeah, he's he's listening out there. We, we hear you, Ron. We hear you. Although he's no Ron. longer
3: mobile, apparently he's based now in uh,
1: in Florida. He's, so. be, yeah, he's a, he's anchored himself to Miami. <laughs> Well, thanks again, Andrew. This has been fantastic. Awesome.
4: Thanks, as always.
2: If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Remember to smash that subscribe button in your favorite podcast player or watch us on YouTube so you don't miss a minute. If you want to know more about what we talked about today, take a look at the show notes for handy links and more dates. And if you haven't tried Good Pods Player yet, give them a spin and follow our show. We recently hit the top of the charts in indie management and marketing podcasts. We love meeting all the Good Pods fans. I'm your co-host, Casey Golden.
1: If you'd like to connect with us and share your feedback, follow us and the show on Twitter at kccgolden, Golden, Ricardo underscore Belmar and at Retail Razor, or find us on LinkedIn. And if you want even more from us, subscribe to our Substack newsletter that includes full episode transcripts and bonus content. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar.
2: Thanks for joining us.
1: And remember, there's never been a better time to be in retail if you cut through the clutter. Until next time, this is The Retail Razor Show.